0: You're listening to Station F, the podcast, from the world's largest startup campus in Paris.
1: This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we're going to dive into the future of plastic with Simon Humbersley, who is CEO of Zampla, and Samantha Anderson, who is CEO of DePoly, a station F startup and currently in the Female Founders Fellowship. Both of their companies are tackling the huge issues surrounding our use of plastic, but from very different angles. Samantha's company, DePoly, is developing a new form of recycling, while Simon's company, Zampla, is backed by Horizon Ventures and is developing a plant-based alternative to plastics. Hi, Samantha and Simon. It's great to have you both with us.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, thanks for organizing everything. Wonderful. Well, we are going to dive right into the future of plastics, and you're both tackling the same problem, but from two very different angles. But before we actually go to what you're building, how you're approaching this, I want to know what made you want to tackle this problem in the first place? Was it like... I'm going to just be very cliche here. Well, will like a whale photo. We see these all the times in the news, you know, something with animals that are just suffering from plastic. Was it something from childhood? What made you want to go after this? Uh, Samantha, I'd love to start with you.
2: So I guess uh, we sort of fall into the cliche. Uh, There was a lot of media and news reports coming out about the amount of um, ocean animals uh, and and fish and whatever else that were uh, washing up on the the shores and just how much plastic was in their stomach. Uh, There was a lot of reports on the size of the plastic patches in the ocean and how they compared to the size of U.S. states. Um, And then on the academic side of things, there was some research that had also been released saying that um, they now have found microplastics in humans and they don't know what that's going to essentially do because this is the first time that this occurrence has essentially been, been documented since, I mean, humans have been around. Uh, and so there, it was a accumulation of all this that, uh, made us sit down and go, okay, you know what? It's, it's time to try and tackle this because, um, you know, the petrol industry and the oil industry and the plastics industry, um, they, they say that they're going to change. And I'm, I think they're doing a lot of research to do it, but I think startups can do it faster. So.
1: Wow! Yeah, and I, I, you blew my mind with that, you know, equivalent of U.S. states <laughs> comment. Um, we've all seen some crazy photos, but I think that image is a really vivid one. Uh, Simon, I'd love to hear from you.
0: Well, I, I'm coming at this from more of a, a, a wider environmental angle. It's, is is this is actually my fourth startup with a with a clean tech focus, with an environmental technology focus. So this is my sort of operating space. But I think the plastic pollution is. Uh, obviously an incredibly emotive issue. And I think it's very hard, no matter how cynical and hard-nosed you are, to look at those images of plastic pollution in our oceans and not be moved by them. So I share Samantha's uh, mission from, from that side of things. But as I say, I'm, I'm a, a technology entrepreneur. I think there is a huge amount that startups can do to address wider environmental problems, not just plastic. Uh, and in fact, to a larger degree, I think that Unless companies start solving these problems, there are some questions to be asked about the future of capitalism in its entirety. So so that's where I put it in. But I share with Samantha, there is something very upsetting about seeing uh, something as pure as a coral reef with pieces of plastic lying across it. It's, an, it's a personally upsetting thing to see.
1: Agreed. And I think you both also agree on another point, which is that startups can really play a role in this. Um, and Simon, I'm going to come to this later. I'd love for you to share some of your previous experiences uh, with us as well. But before we get to that, I want to know about what you're building now. So Samantha, once again, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us about Depoly? What is it? How does it work? And what's the tech behind it?
2: Yeah, so i um We are uh, a chemical, uh, essentially, well, depending on which part of industry you look at it, it's either called enhanced recycling or chemical recycling. Um, Enhanced recycling is the... Uh, the term that is commonly used in uh, media and journals, Um, but essentially it is chemical recycling. So at Depoly, we chemically recycle post-consumer pet plastic waste back to its two main original chemical components. Um, So we basically break down the polymer chain to the two raw components that are originally sourced from the oil industry. Um, And then we can... you know, give that back to industry so that industry can make, for example, um, new bottles, new clothing, uh, straps for industry um, with and and have a sustainable source for those monomers um, instead of having to source them directly from the petrol industry, for example.
1: Wow, that sounds highly scientific. Tell me, how does this compare to what we're currently doing?
2: So right now, what is typically done. And so this is, let's ignore all the other startups that are working on this as well, because, um, there's other ways that you can also, uh, chemically recycle, um, plastics that are, are much at a much larger scale than we currently are. Um, but the, the normal standard recycling method is that you would, um, take your bottles or your containers, uh, you'd put them into your local Deschetterie or collection point, for example, and then, um, these would get given to essentially somebody to sort them. And what they do is they sort by color. So if you have a container that's uh, heavily in black dyes or red dyes or something like this, they'll get put into one pile and like the clear soda bottles will get put into another pile. And then when they have enough um, of clean plastic, so it has to be clean. It can't be dirty. You can't have salad, uh, uh, salad dressing residue or butter or oil or anything like this left in it. So all the clean stuff is given to people who would um, essentially grind it, wash it. Um, They would separate out any other plastics in there. For example, if there was polypropylene or high density, low density polyethylene from like the lid or the cap or a a label of a bottle, those would get separated out. uh, And then through a very long process, eventually you get um, what are called recycled pet pellets. Um, and these are made from, you know, our recycled uh, material, but the majority of the plastic that they, they treat doesn't actually get recycled because they have to have such high levels of cleanliness, um, so that they can meet food and safety regulations going forward to, you know, be remade into a new bottle, for example. So you, you lose a lot of your material actually during this process.
1: Wow, I don't think I even realized that before you just kind of broke it down for me. Um, Simon, I'd love to kind of hear from you as well on how is, because Sampla is doing something that is so different, yet you guys are both really coming at the same problem. Tell us, how does Sampla tackle this?
0: Well, I think I think you, you summed it up. This is a very big problem and there are lots of different ways of solving it. So Samantha and I are addressing these things from a slightly different point of view, but but we're all trying to solve the same problem. So Zampler starts from the theory or the, the, the position that the, the future of plastics is, is a material that delivers the performance of plastic, but which doesn't pollute. So that's very different from a sort of systems approach that Samantha's addressing for, for today's plastics, which is, of course, a, a vital problem that needs to be solved. But in the longer term, our view is that the replacement for plastic in the long run is a material that doesn't pollute at all. So Zampler is a University of Cambridge spin-out and over 15 years my academic founder Thomas Knowles has developed a material which is only made by plants, only made from plants, plant protein specifically, uh, which performs like low-density polyethylene and other sort of plastic materials in application. And then at end of life is a food. It's literally only made by Uh, engineering plant proteins, there is no chemical modification at all. So it degrades in the way that a food does. So it's a next generation material uh, in comparison to some of the other materials that you see out there today.
1: Fascinating. And I actually think both of your solutions um, are very applicable to the problem, given that one I don't see plastic going away anytime soon, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, and two, that when plastic finally does start to die out, we really need to get something else in there. Um, but Simon, just to kind of complete what you've just said, um, tell us just a little bit, How does like what does this actually look like? How long does it last? How does it dissolve after how long? Um, what's, the, what's the experience?
0: I think there's a huge amount of confusion uh, around the, the area of bio-based and natural materials in, in this space, uh, and there's also a lot of claims out there which are which are false. So I'll sort of simplify in, in basic terms: most of the materials that are made from plants are made from plant polysaccharide rather than plant pro- protein, and those polysaccharides need to be chemically modified in order to make them strong practical materials. And that's why at end of life, even if they have better biodegradability than fossil fuel materials, they are still chemically altered. And when they hit the environment, they're they're causing problems. Our material is entirely made from plant protein. There's no chemical modification. So we can engineer it into films and microplastics and beads and capsules uh, and a whole series of structures uh, that take that address various parts of the plastics market, not currently uh, hard structured plastics like PET and so forth, but in terms of single use structures, uh, and that's where we're different. When our material hits uh, the environment, it, it's literally digested, whereas others still require degradation in certain circumstances or specific industrial composting, for instance.
1: So, just because you've said it a few times, I have to ask: but can you yeah. actually eat <laughs> what you guys are developing?
0: Absolutely. And one of our launch markets is for edible, dissolvable and, in fact, cookable plastics. One of the main problems we've seen a lot of during lockdown is home delivery services and takeout kit. And a lot of those manufacturers are very interested in how we engineer out the problem of plastic rather than merely replace it or recycle it. Uh, and that's a trend that we are a part of. And we're going to see more of that over the coming years. Shampoos that are delivered in tablet forms that you turn into shampoos in your bottle at home, uh, all sorts of tablets and change of format, which then also enables direct consumer models. It's a very fast moving space. And and you said you you don't see a future without plastic anytime soon. I think Unilever would disagree with you on that one. Unilever think,
1: would disagree with me.
0: Yeah, I think these major brands are moving very, very quickly. To respond to consumer drivers, and I think we're going to be seeing a lot less plastic uh, within a time frame of, of ten years. Unilever's Clean Futures program is targeting 2030. That's nothing in the development cycle of some of these products. It's really very rapid change.
1: Well, that's very reassuring to hear, Samantha. I'd love to hear from you. Where do you, where do you see plastic uh, in the next ten years?
2: Um, so I, I completely agree when it comes to containers um, that. They're the main people and the the big companies out there are looking to make changes now because uh, they have to respond to their clients and their consumers and and what we are basically saying is that we want uh, you know less plastic, especially less single use plastic um, but the only thing is that for us and how we look at it is that's great, but we use plastic in so many other things that people don't consider for example t-shirts fast fashion brands um runners. Um, even just straps for industry for them to maybe hold down some like materials on on planes or cargo ships or whatever. Like it's, it's really plastic is everywhere. Um, and we can eliminate it from one source, um, which we would, can be like the single use containers or it could be from the shampoo bottles that you buy or, or whatever. Um, but tackling the problem on a large scale is going to have to address like the, the plastic industry as a whole. Um, and that's going to be a much longer chain change um, and which is what we're hoping to help solve because then at least a lot of these companies that rely on PET plastic that they can't change to something like um, a biopolymer or or anything like this, they have access to something that's sustainable now instead of going back to like the raw material that you would source from oil and gas.
1: Interesting. And so I just, I'm, I'm wondering if it isn't almost like a go-to-market problem, like how do you actually solve the plastic issue? You mentioned that you have to address the whole industry would it come from regulation? Would it come from big corporations like Unilever? Is Unilever exceptional, or is it becoming a larger trend? Uh, does it have to come from consumers? Where do you guys really see the major change coming from, Simon?
0: I think I think Unilever is a leader, but it's not exceptional. I think that the brand owners are the real power in this transition away from fossil fuel materials. Because they own the consumer relationship, so they are being driven by their their consumers. So ultimately, whether we're as voters or whether we're as purchasers of product, we are the ones who have the power to enact this change. And it's the brands that drive the, the actual supply chain and respond to that. So regulation, politics all have a part to play, but actually it's we as consumers and our behavior. that that makes the difference. Um, But I do agree with with Samantha, it's an enormous problem and there's an enormous sort of challenge to solve this. Uh, And the the plastics industry needs to come on board. A real solution here is to drop into existing manufacturer processes, novel materials, because we're seeing assets being commissioned now that will last for 20 to 30 years in terms of production plant. So one needs to work with those existing uh, systems, if any form of change is, is to be enacted in a meaningful way.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that it's, as consumers, like um, Simon has said, we have a lot of power. Um, and I think you can already see that change um, in some of these brands where they are making eco-sustainable, or 100% recycled, or, or whatever the, the item is that they're selling, they're putting these on the market. Um, getting into the More of the industrial side of things is going to be complicated, but I think with a lot of governmental pressure coming in also through the EU about just exactly how much um, our pet has to be in items that are used uh, with virgin pet also helps. um, I think it's going to be, we're going to have to tackle the problem. It's going to be a group thing. Um, It's not just going to be consumers. It's not just going to be government. It's not going to be just Um, the plastic manufacturers, it's going to have to be everybody coming on board. Um, And if it means that one person's putting slightly more pressure so that the other person kind of picks up their feet and gets going, it might come down to something like that as well.
1: Interesting. So there's there's hope, but it's a very big collaborative group effort. Um, super. Well, I'm also wondering what, because you've both kind of, and Simon, you've mentioned that you've kind of been in uh, the clean tech space for quite a while, but I'm wondering what surprised you about this space when you launched your businesses? Is Was there anything that kind of was either disappointing or exceptional? Um, Samantha, I'll start with you.
2: Um, for me, I thought what the main thing that hit me, especially coming into clean tech um, right out of academia, was exactly how many startups are trying to fight so many of these problems. And I think that uh, from a, a non-startup point of view, everybody always looks at like the big companies and goes, "Oh, they're doing something," and these are the only people that maybe are working on it. Um, but behind the scenes, I mean, you've got even just for uh deplomerization of plastic, there's probably like 30 companies that are trying to to figure that problem. In, on the pyrolysis side of things, there's companies that are trying to make it more efi- uh, efficient. Um, and even from a completely different area in carbon capture and storage, There's there's tons of startups that are working on this. And it's amazing to see what goes on behind the scenes that
1: people don't really notice. Super, and Simon, given it's your fourth or fifth company, I can't remember. <laughs>
0: I'm Still feeling surprised. very old now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd say that what is significantly different about this uh, time now is is in the past when I've worked on projects or companies that may be addressing climate change or they might be addressing energy efficiency or water leakage or so forth, people are aware of the problem, but there isn't a real energy in solving it. I have never, ever had the sort of response in the past that I'm getting from major companies at the moment around plastic uh, as an issue. And that response is taking the form of things like, for instance, customers telling us that they're prepared to reformulate their products to be compatible with our packaging materials. Now, that's an extraordinary thing for major companies to be that engaged with solving a problem that they're prepared to reformulate, change brands and so forth. And it's all because of the timeliness uh, of this issue. And, and from Zampler's point of view, we're fortunate is we've got core research, you know, we're a deep tech business based on on great science from Cambridge, core research coming out of that research base at exactly the right time to make a real commercial impact. And that's very, very unusual, very unusual.
1: Well, that's very promising to hear. Um, Now, I wanted to come a little bit more in depth. I want to go into more detail into both of your backgrounds, because it sounds like what you're doing is incredibly scientific and technical. Um, Just tell us a little bit about kind of, how you ended up doing this? Um, And I'm gonna characterize it a bit, but do you actually need three PhDs to be able to run a company like this? Simon.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll defer to Samantha, who's far better educated than I am. Uh, I am not a scientist, so I came at this from the the commercial side and and from the sort of mission, the purpose side of things. Um, But yes, I think broadly, one needs a balance of skills, commercial is in there, but but deep tech is what is going to solve these problems. Where I'd say um, I, I'm cautious about the sort of spin out world is that we do tend to take a piece of science and try and find a problem to, to solve it with. Uh, and it's much better to look the other way around. And, and this is, again, where this sort of major systemic change that we're seeing in plastics is quite an opportunity. The question I'm asking myself is, what does the world look like in 2040? who's supplying plastics, and it will be a handful of bio-based majors doing that. It'll look like today's value chain, but there won't be fossil fuels at one end of it. It'll be natural feedstocks. And our goal is to build this business into into one of those majors.
1: Very, very good point. Also, I I loved what you said about um, kind of having the problem (laughs) to go after before you have the solution. I definitely agree with you on that. Samantha, what do you think? Um,
2: I guess from like a, I don't think, okay, so you don't necessarily need to have people that are, that all have PhDs, um, but you need to have the right people that have the right set of skills. Um, and in our case, I was lucky enough to work with both Chris and Bardia during my PhD. So not only did we all have the experience of working with each other through tough times, because I mean, PhDs are not exactly easy. Chris was already a postdoc, I should say. So he was more kind of helping the lab and running the lab and, and getting experience from that. Um, But it was the, it's the combination of those, those skills. That's the most important. So Chris and I have the organic, materials chemistry background that we were able to take and think okay we can probably solve this problem with chemistry how do we do it and then talk to bardia and go we want to solve this problem how would we actually scale it up and bardia would say yeah you can, you can but you have to make sure and then he'd give like a list of things that we had to be cautious of um, so it's it, for us it was perfect because we when we first started solving this, we started trying to look at the problem not from a let's solve it on a four hundred milligram scale, but okay, let's first try it on a four hundred milligram scale. And then how do we get it up to like a fifty kilogram scale? Um, and and for that, I mean, that was the the biggest thing. Um, I mean, and we also do need to have uh some people join that have more um business experience. I mean, I've always taken courses around this, but I mean I don't have an MBA, but we have a lot of co- uh, coaches and people who help us um to supplement in on that side. Um, so there is, I guess, a little bit of a drawback of having very academic people coming out as well. Uh, so
1: very interesting you've both kind of highlighted the the business need um, in in running these types of businesses so thank you both for that I think now we're coming towards the end um, I do want to ask you about what other technologies companies um, and not even just in plastics but also in clean tech in general you're excited about and that you see big opportunities in um, Simon I'd love to hear from you given especially that you've you know, been in, in this space for quite a while and that you've worked on previous problems. What do you get the most excited about in this clean tech space?
0: I think I mean, i despite not being a, a scientist, I do get very overexcited by by tech. Uh, and there are any number of solutions coming out of major universities and, and other places as well, uh, which excite me. But but I think I'm also a very practical person. And oddly, I get quite excited by the dull, practical things that are actually going to implement the change. So, you know, a, a clever app that optimises the logistics in a business is going to have greater impact on climate change than some huge clever geoengineering project that gets the front page newspaper and excites me, but is never going to see reality. So, so that's a very boring sort of answer. But actually, it's sometimes in the nuts and bolts, where the real progress is made. And, and that's analogous to, you know, computing in its widest farms and, and semiconductors and so forth. It's the detailed specialists who make things happen that actually both win the race commercially, but actually also change the world.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Samantha?
2: Yeah, I have to completely agree. Um, I mean, I'm always excited by chemistry, chemistry like startups and, and these big engineering projects. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see what is being done on the chemical recycling side, uh, on the water purification side of things for countries that um, have low access to water. Um, but ultimately, uh yeah i completely agree there's a lot of uh companies that will have their names splashed across newspapers um or will be in big journals and things like this um but it's always the kind of the guys behind the scenes that do um that do the 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 legwork i guess um or that can make some of the biggest changes that people maybe don't expect uh so yeah um I, i completely agree with simon in this case
0: I think it's quite hard for investors to to, to find their way because they have to be real experts. They have to understand that it's not about the front page headlines. It is about the detail here. And and fortunately, some investors do have excellent science backgrounds and are able to to see through it. But uh, yeah, it's a a challenge for everybody, seeing what's real and what's just very exciting, but perhaps not all that practical.
1: Interesting. And Simon, um, do you have any names of companies that come to mind?
0: Uh, not particularly. I mean, I think I can list our competitors, the ones that we think are exciting, the <laughs> ones that we think are not so exciting. There's a French company called Lactips that we have a very high regard for, which is a, a protein materials business. Um, but but again, part of what I look to when I'm looking at companies in our space is their commercial progress and their commercial credibility. Lactips mm-hmm. has a lot of that uh, as well as the science side. So. Um, yeah, I'd leave it at that. And on materials, I'd say PHA, if we're looking into the future PHA in the plastics world, I think is is a credible one, whereas a lot of the PLA and some of the other materials out there are not genuinely sustainable solutions. I'd also say there are te- incredibly interesting things going on in developing nations where the plastic problem is is front and central. It's their beaches that are getting polluted. And sometimes those are incredibly low-tech, even if it's just reuse of... of plastics or it's it's dispensing uh, directly from a bottle rather than single-use sachets. Those are the sorts of really practical solutions to problems which are actually solving them today and do not require billions of pounds of investment to roll out.
1: Perfect. I think that is a terrific note to end on, especially because that leaves our listeners with a potential startup opportunity if they'd like to go after it. Uh, Simon and Samantha, it's been wonderful having you both with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you very them. much. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a guest, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. Finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Deezer, and Google. All right, see you soon.